Welcome to the fourth podcast in the UNSW Canberra series, Navigating Uncertainty, on the topic of corporate power in Australia's democracy. In such tumultuous and unpredictable times, we believe that careful work in the humanities and social sciences can shed light on many of our current challenges and help us chart ways forward. This podcast has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. We acknowledge their elders past and present and that sovereignty has never been ceded. I am Clinton Fernandez at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences, recording from Melbourne. It's my pleasure to host today's conversation. Our guest today is Dr. Lindy Edwards, also of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences from Canberra. Linda, you've written a book called Corporate Power in Australia. Why did you set out to do a study of corporate power? Look, conspiracy theories about corporate power are really common, but studies about it are actually quite rare. And in the context that trust in Australian democracies dropped really dramatically over the last decade, and there were signs pointing to there being all sorts of problems with corporate power in Australia, I wanted to go and do the detailed study to check out what the evidence was. Uh, is there reason to think that Australia might have a growing problem with corporate power? Look, there are a couple of things that point to, the, to potentially serious problems. The first thing is we've seen a massive increase in economic concentration since the 1990s. That in 1993, the top 100 companies in Australia, or the top 100 countries companies on the ASX, made up uh, about 27% of the total economy. By 2015, it was, the ACCC reported it was at 47%. So 100 companies making up nearly half of the, of the entire Australian economy. The second thing that was really important, so you've got this big concentration of economic power. The second thing that was really important was that there's also been this huge mo political mobilisation of that power. That in the 1980s, political lobbying was described as a bit of an ad hoc amateur affair. Um, since that time, it's become hugely professionalised. There are uni courses that prepare you for it. It's a career structure. And there's now estimated to be about 5,000 professional lobbyists in Canberra. Wow, I didn't realise it was that uh, systematic. Uh, what did you find uh, in the course of your research? So the study looked at the 10 biggest companies across five sectors. And its goal was to work out whether or not our largest companies get what they want out of the political cycle, out of, out of the political system. And it found that in three of the five sectors that we looked at, that we were veering dangerously into the Medici cycle. One was teetering on the edge and one sector got completely lost out. Uh, you used the phrase uh, a Medici cycle. What is a Medici cycle and is Australia in a Medici cycle? So a Medici cycle refers to when political and economic power become self-reinforcing. So you accumulate so much economic power that you're then able to put pressure on the political system and then and to get laws and regulations which actually help you build your profits and accumulate even more economic power. So it becomes this sort of self-reinforcing cycle. And it's named for the Medici family that dominated Renaissance Italy for 300 years. Mm. Um, how does political power translate into economic power? Well, so the thing that was really striking that leapt out of these case studies was that all of the companies we looked at and all the sectors we looked at were dominated by, by sort of 
generally between one and four really enormous country companies that sort of projected power along these very long supply chains. And that a lot of their corporate strategy was all about redistributing profit along their supply chains. And when they went in with, they were in, it turned out that all of their conflicts with government were over laws and regulations that impacted where the profits were realised in the supply chain. So if they could get the favourable laws and regulation, they were able to scrape all the money out of that supply chain and um, f- realise the wealth in their own pockets. Mm. Uh, can you give me an example? So a really classic example of this is the fight between the supermarkets and the farmers, where we've got a situation, we've got a big duopoly between Coles and Woolies. Um, at times, sort of more than 70% of Australia's grocery spend goes through Coles and Woolies. And so the farmers have only got, you know, if you want access to the mass market, you've really got to deal with Coles and Woolies. Coles and Woolies know that, and they've use that power to project power back along the supply chains to squeeze farmers as much as they possibly could. And that some of the be- some of the stories that come out of farmers about the sorts of behaviour they've been subject to are really quite shocking. And the farmers have made multiple efforts at trying to get codes of conduct, um, unfair, unfair contract terms laws, um, abusive market power laws, and to try and to try and prevent these the supermarkets doing what they're doing, um, but they haven't been able to get those laws and regulations. Mm. Um, how did you go about the study? What methods did you use? So studying corporate power is notoriously difficult um, because nobody wants to fess up and say, "Hey, this is what we did," and, the, and that generally the influence is, you know, it's deep. It's behind closed doors, it's deep in the political process. And because politics is a collective decision-making process, um, what influenced one actor is not always the same thing that influenced others. So it can be quite hard to definitively identify. So what we did with this study was that when when government policy has been developed, it goes sort of through various stages of policy development, where at the beginning of the process, um, all your different stakeholders are required to put in submissions on what sort of outcomes they want, would like to see from the new government policy. And what we did was we identified um, identified what the stakeholders' preferences were at the very beginning of the process, traced it through the decision-making process to see which stakeholders got what they wanted at the end in the final legislation. And that way we could tell who won, even if we couldn't tell you exactly how. Uh, Were any of your findings unexpected? Yeah, look, a number of things were quite unexpected. One of the most most unexpected was that we're really looking at crony capitalism rather than free market capitalism going amok. That quite often people, when they look at this corporate power or or the growth of corporate power, they point to free market ideas as being the culprit. But what I found was that actually the big pro-free market sort of policy organisations actually repeatedly advised governments um, to move against the big corporates. Um, and they were complete and they were repeatedly overruled that the corporate influences were trumping um, were trumping these neoliberal ideas. Mm. Uh, did it matter which party was in power? Look, it did. It mattered quite a lot. Um, one of the things that to me was the most shocking part of this um, of this research, having having worked in Prime Minister and Cabinet under the Howard government, I was quite shocked to see how far the Liberal Party have moved. Um, that they really, 
have abandoned all pretense that they're operating to advance the community interest, that they're the extent to which they backed the interests of the largest corporates um, was extraordinary in quite how systematic it was. And it was quite striking that it seemed to be quite an institutional grip on the party in the sense that both Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull um, both advocated the, against the interests of these big corporates when they were vying for the top job. But once they were actually Prime Minister, they got pulled into line and they ended up um, they ended up backing in what the key corporates wanted. So what was extraordinary was the extent to which the Liberals were completely beholden that no matter how badly the corporates behaved, whether it was their abuse of farmers or small business or franchisees or the bank's treatment of their customers, um, or even things like you know things like mining taxes, where where there was a real community problem to solve, and they could have come down and gone, well, you know, we're going to wrong foot labour on this, but we'll still look after the community interest here, and they didn't. They came in a hundred percent behind the companies, which which was quite shocking to me. Um, another thing that was interesting was that the nationals were much more important than I expected. I think we often treat the nationals as a bit of a footnote in our politics, but actually, particularly because the Liberal Party was so beholden, um, manoeuvring by the National Party and maverick and renegade National Party senators were actually really important of being a constraint on corporate power. Mm. Uh, and political parties are ultimately uh, consist of people. Uh, and so did you get any insights into the personalities of uh, these people in these parties? Look, one of the, some of the things that were interesting to watch, some of the personalities didn't play out quite according to their public persona, that, for example, Malcolm Turnbull has got quite a strong conviction politician kind of a reputation. And yet, as I went through these case studies, um, he had a hand in almost all of them. And he was, you know, and he was very much aligned with the corporates um, in 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 these outcomes. That he was his behaviour perhaps wasn't quite what I think many people might have expected of him. Uh, given the formidable power of corporations, um, is there anything that we can do about their capture of the political system? Look, I think. I was, as I say, I was really pretty, pretty stunned by the findings around around the Liberal Party, um, and it was interesting to notice that the Labor Party, on sort of five of the seven cases I looked at, they kind of did the things you'd expect a Labor Party to do, um, except for when Coles and Woolies' interests were in play, um, and they clearly they there were considerable signs that there's relationships between Coles and Woolies through the Shoppies Union that meant that Labor behaves in some quite unexpected ways when Coles and Woolies are in play. But it spoke to the fact that... Um, it speaks to the fact that that our two old parties... You know, Australia's got one of the oldest two-party systems in the world and they're so embedded in the democratic process that they're actually really part of our political machinery. And But because they weren't designed to be part of it, you know, they're not, they're not even mentioned in the Constitution there's actually very few protections or balances around them. And those parties have become very small, um, very easy to capture. And as we see all of these branch stacking scandals that are going on, um, we can see how that increasingly the battle for power in Australia is being played out within the parties trying to stack them, knowing that people really don't have an alternative other than voting for one of two of these parties. So 
you know, the only way I must, I got to the end of this book and I thought, gee, this is depressing. And the only way I could quite see around it actually was was actually the introduction of a form of proportional voting in the lower house that actually that we need to be able to threaten the incumbency of the major parties, that we need to be able to get new blood in there and shake things up. Um, because at the moment, they've got a hold on the system and that's, um, that's really problematic. Yeah, you're describing almost a system in which a political class, um, a narrow sociological class in the political system has captured uh, our political system as a whole. And so can you talk about what we can do about the problem of economic power? Okay, so... You know, so when you think about this Medici cycle, you've got the political part of it and you've got the economic part of it. And the economic part of it, so, you know, trying to deal with the parties is one side of it, and, but trying to think about what to do about the economic power side of it is the other part of it. And one of the things I think we need here is we need a big shift in how we think about these issues. That, you know, as everybody talks about coming out of COVID, there's going to be lots of talk about individuals and free markets and this sort of characterisation of the economy. But the reality is our economy is actually dominated by a small number of very, very large organisations. And while the kind of the free market mythology is that everybody's being paid according to what they're worth, depending on demand and supply, and really what this study draws out is actually, um, you know, everybody's, you know, all of us in our jobs, we're sort of links in these long chains. And... There's huge power plays which are determining how much money each link in the train gets gets paid. And I think we need to be paying much more attention to that, this, this idea that everybody, that because of the forces of the market, everybody's being paid what they're worth, that that's really not what's going on. And what we need to be doing is to be being really conscious that, you know, the pursuit of profit can be a productive thing that creates new wealth and brings new stuff into the world that enhances our lives. But the pursuit of profit can also just be an exercise in redistributing wealth up and down these chains. And we need to get really clear about what's productive profits and what's exploitative profits. And we need to be looking at ways that we, that we reduce and minimise this exploitative profit making. Um, how did it work in this profit uh, season, though, the post-pandemic year that you're talking about with uh, JobKeeper? Now, isn't that a good thing? Well, so this is an example of, so this dynamic we've seen over the last decade has been one where what we've seen is companies have been propping up their profits by scraping the wealth out of these supply chains. So we've seen sort of no wage growth, no productivity growth, but increases in profits as they scrape the wealth out of these chains. And in, you know, come along COVID, you think it's going to change the world up, but actually it turns out the same in the sense that, you know, so far, this reporting season, the story has been that wages and revenues are down, but profits are actually up, that they've managed to find ways um, to create opportunities from the use of JobKeeper, um, where they've been able to scrape the wealth away from other people in the chain. And, you know, and profits went up in the middle of a pandemic. And the money that's being used to fund JobKeeper is ultimately going to have to be paid for by all of us. So it's like you're describing a system in which um, the risks and the costs um, are socialised, uh, but the profits are privatised to these narrow sectors. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly if the ambition that we've been hearing a lot about saying, oh, let's reduce corporate tax rates and move the tax burden onto, onto a GST so that 
ordinary people buying their usual goods and services are taking on more of the tax burden to pay the JobKeeper burden back and that these corporates will be paying less on their profits. But certainly, if that becomes the case, that's absolutely the socialisation of the costs and the privatisation of profits. Wow. Um, it's like you were talking about the difference between uh, uh, two kinds of profits. Yeah, One is profits that you make through productivity, the other one just through collecting rent. Absolutely. It's it's the difference between making the pie bigger versus just increasing the size of your slice. And in a way, these huge managerial corporations are much more, um, you know, increasing your slice of the pies, kind of the, the kind of thing that middle management can kind of do to a formula in a way that actually creating new wealth create, requires sort of creativity and innovation and change. But actually, these big bureaucracies where everybody's got these sort of narrow KPIs, that increasingly the way that you achieve your KPIs is you find the ways to squeeze people with less power than you. Is the system you're describing really just a form of class warfare? Look, that's sort of been the old framework for it. But actually, this research is pointing in, quite, in some quite new directions that it's much more that actually all of these big fights, they weren't fights between. Um, between capital and labour, between the employers versus workers, they were actually fights between the very biggest companies and the medium and small companies. And so these were actually battles within capital in that old language. And so it speaks to this idea that, you know, I think a lot of that old language of capital and class, you know, speaks to debates of a long time ago. Um, But that sort of central question of power and the ways in which those that hold the most power are able to use that power to scrape the benefits to themselves. Um, I think it actually points to needing a new framework for capturing that in a way that reflects the modern world. I think that there's been lots of criticism about the idea that old class analyses don't work anymore, that people don't identify with class, that there's lots of different groups and identities and professions, and that this study points out that actually it's not just workers getting getting hammered by this stuff it's actually the impact of the most powerful companies on smaller companies so it points to actually needing needing in, in a way to kind of revisit that idea of the way that the powerful are able to capture the benefits of capitalism but actually we need a new framework class capital and class doesn't do it anymore well, what you're describing is almost uh, calling for a need for a, a sociology of uh, the corporate world, whereby uh, the very big corporations are able to hollow out and dominate uh, the medium-sized and smaller ones. Yeah, look, that's absolutely what's happened. And you're right that actually the idea of uh, global value chains is an idea that we've seen in international political economy, looking at the way in which um, big corporates set up their supply chains going around the world and, you know, and that the distribution of wealth of how much of the money made of creating an iPhone goes to the designers in Silicon Valley versus the people who make it in China versus wherever. And that, that we're sort of se- we've seen that sort of a study at, at that global level. But actually this study points to the fact that we need that at the domestic level as well. We need that if you want to understand... Um, you know, if we want to understand the plight of farmers, the plight of fruit pickers, the exploitation of backpackers and the problems with the Murray-Darling Basin, we actually kind of need to realise that they're all in a supply chain that are all getting hit by the power of the supermarkets, which are actually squeezing all of those different players. And they don't necessarily see themselves as allies, but perhaps they should be. Perhaps they should be kind of going, actually, 
everybody in this supply chain is being affected by this concentration of power at the top. And that, you know, if we want to have a water supply in the future, um, if we, you know, if we want these farming sectors to be sustainable, um, then we need to be, uh, you know, then we need to be looking at the, looking at this value chain and treating that as what we analyse, not the firm and not the market, but the value chain. So going into this study, um, you know, a lot of the research in this space had pointed to there's sort of three possible sources of corporate power, where um, what most people think of as kind of corruption is what the, you know, the scholars describe as instrumental power, and that's lobbying and donations and that sort of thing. The second form of power that people point to is ideational power, the power of ideas, and that's been this assumption of free market ideas and the benefits of globalisation. And then the third sort of source of power um, potentially was in fact this, what they call structural power, which, um, which, is, which is sort of argued to have got much more profound since globalisation, which is the ability of big companies to go that because politicians are reliant on big companies to invest and to create jobs, they kind of need to make sure, you know, politicians have a vested interest in making sure the companies are profitable so they invest and make jobs. And this has given these companies this power to go to government and say, look, if you don't give us um, the wages and regulations and tax rates that we want, then we'll take our industry offshore and that politicians have been beholden to that. And what was really interesting was, so, so we've got these three forms of power, structural power, um, ideas power and instrumental power. A lot of the research in recent years has pointed to instrumental power of globalisation or springing from globalisation and this ideas power around free markets. And what was interesting about my case studies was that those two arguments weren't borne out, that actually the companies for the most part didn't have credible cases that they were genuinely going to have to take the companies offshore if they didn't get the rules they wanted and they weren't um, and they weren't being supported by free market ideas and ideas of market competition and that's kind of worrying because that sort of points to you know instrumental power this much more corrupt um, erosion of our democracy as being as being the central problem Hasn't the pandemic shown, though, that, in fact, labor is the source of all value uh, because uh, they have the infrastructure, they've got the factories, they've got the supermarket shelves, but if there's nobody able to work to, to get the things to market or to serve people and at the checkouts and so on, um, then uh, the system just crashes, which is where we are now. Hasn't this highlighted the importance of labor? Um. Look, it has it it has highlighted the importance of labour, but it's also highlighted that you know the countries that are going to do the best out of this are the ones where lots of people can work from home and they've got the technology and the capital um, that you've got sort of those enablers. But I think it it does point to the fact that you know if we think about these long production chains, that really what they're made up of is all of these people doing highly specialised jobs and using highly specialised tools, and it's actually the cooperative effort or the combined effort of people doing all of these specialised things which creates the value of the whole. And that, as you say, you know, if suddenly the workers aren't there, then, you know, your, your machinery by itself is not that helpful. And in fact, 
it points to the fact that the value created by the chain is the cooperative product of all of the individuals within it. And then it points to this sort of very difficult question, which is, if the value has been created by a cooperative endeavour, how do you determine who gets what in the chain? And, um, and I think, you know, and certainly, you know, and what the, all of this research is pointing to is the fact that, you know, for the last 30 years, we've said, oh, the market sorts it out and makes sure everybody gets paid what they deserve. And what this study is pointing to is going, actually, there's an enormous amount of power dynamics around determining who gets paid what in the chains. Yes, those who produce value don't necessarily have the power to realise that value. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And not surprisingly, those who've got a lot of power over making decisions over how the money is distributed are convinced that they're terribly, terribly important in the contribution to that. Mm. Uh, before the pandemic hit, we were already in the era of the gig economy with uh, uh, insecurity of jobs and uh, a precariat that was growing. Uh, is that likely to continue? Yeah, look, I think that that's, that's sort of been one of the interesting features of this sort of huge period of technological change is that a lot of the technological change hasn't changed the jobs that people do, but the technology has enabled us to break out of old sort of corporate structures and things that provided security and certainty for people. And, you know, so if we think about things like, you know, we think about things like Uber, it's still somebody picking you up in a car and driving you somewhere somewhere that you want to go. Um, but the new technology and turning it into gig work has meant that they've been able to escape, um, you know, minimum wage requirements and insurance and super and all of those sorts of things um, that you know that we've had a hundred years of people fighting industrial relations battles to put those those um, protections in place, and what the technology has done is simply disrupt that so that those protections have been removed. Wow, that's a valuable reminder that uh, despite this uh, technological fantasy, uh, it's still a case of politics being about who gets what, when, and how. Indeed, it is. Indeed yeah. it is. Uh, well, uh, thank you, Lindy, for joining us for such a fascinating discussion. Uh, and thank you to the audience for your interest today. This was the fourth in UNSW's Navigating Uncertainty podcast. Please join us again when we explore the topic of thinking and planning for the future threat environment after COVID in our fifth podcast. <laughs>